0: Tech Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English, with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 715 for the 16th of October, 2020. This week, big data and artificial intelligence offer a lot of promise, but there are also formidable challenges. Unless proved otherwise, perhaps we should consider these technologies dangerous or at least potentially hostile. In short circuits, the Windows 10 October 2020 update is coming. It's available now only to those in the Windows Insider program, but it won't be long until it's pushed out to all users. It is a small update. Support for Office 2010 ended on the 13th of October 2020. If you're thinking this is no big deal, think again. The end of support means the end of security updates and bug fixes. In spare parts, only on the website, sometimes I get the crazy idea that there are scammers who intentionally create email messages with so many errors that no sentient human would fall for them. Why? there is no logical reason. If you use Zoom or any other meeting application that supports background substitution, Tech Republic has some Halloween images you might like. And 20 years ago, security concerns in 2000 were not substantially different from what they are today. The players have changed, but many of the rules remain the same. Perhaps you've noticed that Facebook shows you sponsored ads from left-leaning organizations if you're a Democrat, and sponsored ads from right-leaning organizations if you're a Republican. A case can be made for this being a very bad thing, and that's because it confirms our existing biases with posts that are slanted to fit our own point of view, and are often factually inaccurate. Ads can be targeted this way because political organizations and businesses have so much information about each of us. With enough information, big data providers can create predictive algorithms that might be correct, but are often wrong. With a PhD in mathematics from Harvard, Kathy O'Neill has a good understanding of big data. She's a mathematician, a data scientist, and an author. Cleveland Public Library presented a webinar with O'Neill in September. O'Neill has written several books, including Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. In September, she talked about algorithms that affect each of us and society overall. From the ads you see on Facebook to the interest rate you'll get on a car, Big Data is there. These systems all work on a scoring system, and sometimes that system and the algorithm behind it are invisible. In fact, most of the time they're invisible. The scores cannot be appealed. So it's a score that will have an effect on your life, but you can't see the formula that created it, and you might not even be aware that it's happening. O'Neill says the results are often wrong and they deny people opportunities that shouldn't be denied. The companies that create the systems are not held accountable for errors and the errors compound each other to create what she calls feedback loops. These systems exist in bureaucracies that need to make difficult decisions. College admissions, human resources departments, insurance companies, banks. In police departments to determine where officers are deployed, and in the justice system to determine the length of prison sentences. Currently, health insurance companies cannot refuse insurance for pre-existing conditions. That could change. And O'Neill says that insurance companies could even use big data to determine whether you might develop a costly condition in the future. But it's mainly guesswork disguised as intelligent systems. The systems fail, she says, because they simply predict the future, based entirely on the past. Political parties are big users of this information because they want to know which candidate people will vote for, and perhaps of more importance, who will donate to the campaign. O'Neill pointed out that whether or not you voted is public record. How you voted is secret, but whether you voted is not. Political campaigns have also become adept at harvesting social media information that people have posted publicly. And many apps that people download and install also capture user data and sell it to businesses and political campaigns. O'Neill offered examples of how big data is used to send tailored ads to specific groups, ads that people outside the target audience will not see. For-profit colleges that often have high costs and low graduation rates send ads to people whose income is low, but who would qualify for federal financing. These are ads that more affluent people will never see. She offered another example of tailored ads that are shown to a specific group of people on Facebook, but Facebook users whose profiles didn't fit the target audience didn't see them. Although big data information is currently being misused, it doesn't always have to be that way. O'Neill is hopeful that things will change. She compared big data to automobiles. In the early part of the 20th century, as cars were being developed, people wanted to drive. Early cars had few safety features, but the technology was new and exciting. Automobile-related deaths skyrocketed, and eventually people saw the need to make cars safer. In the middle and latter parts of the century, people demanded safety features, better steering systems, disc brakes, seat belts, airbags, crash testing, and more. Highway engineers designed roads that are safer. Big data and artificial intelligence are exciting. The technologies can do a lot of good, but they can also do a lot of harm. And right now, the harm is mostly invisible, O'Neill says, people not getting a loan they should get, or being passed over for a job they're qualified to do. Today, we're just beginning to see the harm these technologies can do, and once we understand the problems, though, we can solve them. According to O'Neill, we just have to do the work. The webinar by the Cleveland Public Library reminded me again how important libraries are, particularly now. Libraries can't currently offer in-person meetings with hundreds of people who want to hear an author speak, so they've stepped up to present webinars instead. It's an improvement in some ways. When the Cleveland Public Library offered its webinar with Kathy O'Neill, the topic was one of considerable interest to me. It's unlikely, though, that I would have driven more than 240 miles to and from Cleveland for a one-hour program. Offering the event as a webinar made it possible to attend a session that I would have missed even in a world without COVID-19. The Cleveland Public Library's Director of Community Engagement, Aaron Mason, says one of the positive aspects of streaming events is that we reach people who are out of town. Attendees for that event came from as far away as Israel and Italy, both of which are considerably further from Cleveland than is Columbus. As difficult as these times are, it's hard to imagine the situation without libraries. It's also a good reason to belong to more than one library. In Ohio, for example, my membership in the Worthington Public Library also gives me access to more than 5 million resources held by a consortium of 17 Central Ohio Library systems. But I am also a member of the Columbus Metropolitan Library, the Cleveland Public Library, and the Cincinnati Public Library. Libraries in some areas have returned to near-normal operation, others remain closed or are offering curbside pickup. Libraries that are partially open may offer concierge service, and many libraries make it possible to use their Wi-Fi system from the parking lot as they continue to find ways to offer essential services. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy, just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you, and so does the cat. short circuits, Microsoft released Windows 10 version 20H2 in late September. It will arrive on your computer at some undetermined time, but it's easy enough to obtain it if you want it now. For the second year in a row, the fall update is tiny when compared to version 2004, also known as 20H1. Among the small changes, System is still an option in the old-style control panel, but it no longer opens the System section in the control panel. Instead, it opens System in Settings. Microsoft has been working to retire the old control panel for the past five years. They're getting closer. With each update, the control panel has fewer options. It also appears that Microsoft is planning to standardize the version number on the codename. The first version of Windows 10 had codename Threshold 1, followed by Threshold 2, and then Redstone 1 through Redstone 5. Version 1903 had codename 19H1. Version 1902 had codename 19H2. The May 2020 update, version 2004, had codename 20H1, and now the October 2000 update uses 20H2 as both the version number and the codename. Apparently, somebody at Microsoft thought that version 2004 made it appear that the version had been released 16 years ago. And then, of course, version 2009 or 2010 would appear to be 11 or 10 years old. That problem would be eliminated with the first 2021 release, which would have been 2104, but that might have left some people wondering how they got an operating system from the next century. So now we have 20H2 instead, and next year, 21H1 and 21H2. This should be an uncommonly stable release because there are so few new features. The update felt more like a standard monthly update when I installed it. The computer had to be rebooted, but the entire process, including the download, took less than 10 minutes. If you're not running version 2004, though, you should expect a somewhat longer update process. Perhaps a very long update process. The start screen now has transparency, and if Windows notices that you use an application frequently it will pin it to the taskbar. How important these changes will be to you depend on how much you use the start screen and whether you want the operating system to make decisions about what's on the taskbar. The new Chromium-based Microsoft Edge browser is built in. The new version has been available since January, and now all new Windows installations will have the Chromium Edge version instead of the old version. So it's probably good to think of the just-released new version of Windows as a service pack. If the wait for 20H2 is anything like the wait for 20H1, you might not see the update until a few weeks before next year's first update. Maybe you'd prefer to install the update at a time of your choosing. Well, it's easy. Relatively easy, anyway. Right now, it does require that you sign up for the Windows Insider program, but you can choose the Release Preview channel instead of the more hazardous Beta channel or the Risky Dev channel. The Dev channel is for technical users who want access to builds early in the development cycle. As Microsoft describes it, those in this channel should expect rough edges and low stability. The Beta channel is recommended for early adopters, and the builds will have undergone more testing, Still, there is a danger of using pre-production builds on a computer that you really depend on. The release preview channel is typically at the release candidate stage, a version that has been extensively tested and sufficiently stable to be generally released. So this is the one you want if you desire to have the update earlier rather than later. And here's how. Start with the Update and Security tab in Settings. Then select the Windows Insider Program tab, click Link an Account, choose the account to link. The best choice here is your Windows Outlook account, the one that you use to log on to Windows. You do have one of those, don't you? If not, you should. Then click Continue, choose whether you want the dev channel, the beta channel, or the release preview channel, and click Confirm. Then, you'll need to reboot the computer and return to Settings after you've logged in. Return to the Update and Security panel in Settings, select the Windows Update tab, click Check for updates and wait for the process to complete. You may or may not see an option to install the 20H2 update. If it is present and you want it, go ahead and click the Installation link. If it's not present, you'll probably find it by selecting view optional updates. Computers running the 2004 or 20H1 version should complete the process in just a few minutes, and those running earlier versions will take considerably longer. still using Microsoft Office 2010? If so, you might want to know that support for that version ended on the 13th of October, 2020. Now, you're probably thinking that's no big deal, but if you are, think again. The end of support means the end of security updates and the end of bug fixes. The best option for most people, especially if there are two or three or even five people in the family who need Office applications on their computer, is Microsoft 365. That is the new name for Office 365. For about $100 a year, you can install the apps on up to six computers and any number of portable devices. That is not $100 a month or $100 per quarter. It is $100 per year. Microsoft also offers Office 2019 with a perpetual license, but it is expensive and it's limited to use by just one person. The software rental system, software as a service, is the future, and there's nothing much anybody can do to get away from it. But if you are adamantly opposed to software as a service, Microsoft will offer Office 2022 with a perpetual license. Buy it once and you can use it forever. Forever means until Microsoft decides to no longer support it. Microsoft 365 does ding you for $100 per year, but the applications are always up to date. Whether the new version will be called Office 2022 or Microsoft 2022 or something else is an open question. Office 2019 was released in 2018, and the new version of Office with a perpetual license will be released in 2021, so it's pretty easy to presume that it'll be called Office 2022. If you're using Office 2013 or Office 2016, you might still have support. Mainstream support for Office 2013 ended in 2018, but extended support continues until 2023. Mainstream support for Office 2016 ended in mid-October, so no new features will be added, but extended support will continue until April 2023. Extended support means that Microsoft will continue to fix bugs and address any security issues that arise between now and then. The termination of extended support for Office 2010 means that users are on their own for security issues. No support of any kind will be offered for that version. Maybe this is a good time to remember that software is licensed, not purchased. This is true for applications that are offered online, as well as for those with a perpetual license. Support ends when the software publisher says it ends, not when the users might wish it would end. You don't need a license, perpetual or otherwise, for spare parts. Just head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. Sometimes I get the crazy idea that there are scammers who intentionally create email messages with so many errors that no sentient human would fall for them. Why? I can't think of a logical reason. If you use Zoom or any other meeting application that supports background substitution, Tech Republic has some Halloween images you might like. And 20 years ago, security concerns in 2000 were not substantially different from what they are today. The players have changed, but many of the rules remain the same.